You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 113. The question we're answering today is, when are seemingly impossible goals good for performance? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, firstly, um, apologies um, on my behalf that we've sort of had a two-month break. I'd like to say, you know, that you know, following the theory of multiple causation that there's lots of reasons for that, but it's mainly just been sort of slackness on my part and I guess not the good kind of slack that promotes resilience either. It's um, the bad kind of slack, which is not getting around to the stuff that you want to. But today you, you prompted me this week and and today we're taking a new look at an old topic and that topic is is zero harm. And we talked about zero harm, Drew, way back in episode 12, which is pre-COVID. And, you know, it's still one of the most downloaded episodes, although I think it's been uh, taken over by episode 94. Five, I think it was, which is the uh, Take Five research that you were you were part of, Drew. And you know, in that episode, the original episode, we we pointed out that whilst there are there's a lot of controversy and debate about zero harm as a strategy, there's actually very little academic literature on the topic. So we summarised some of the main papers in that episode. And if you're relatively new to the podcast, you know, you maybe want to go back through the back catalogue and check it out sometime. Um, but you don't need to have listened to it for to follow what we're going to talk about today. So, Drew. What prompted you to sort of come back to this topic and, and, and go looking for another paper? So, David, I've been keeping a lookout for new research about all of our old topics, because one of the points of the podcast is we're trying to give up-to-date empirical research. And once things start to get three or four years old, maybe there's new stuff that comes along that replaces it. Um, there hasn't really been anything significant about zero harm. Uh, one of the main advocates of zero harm, uh, Jared Sweatslut, has published a new handbook, which I'd recommend if you're interested in a good history of sort of the overview of zero thinking and what are the arguments in favour of zero harm. But it's not new research and it doesn't really engage with any of the criticism. But what I did think is that we could look at the arguments for zero harm and look at whether there is evidence that directly supports those arguments. So the basic idea is that companies should adopt a sort of visionary goal of having zero accidents. Uh, often that comes along with commitment statements by managers, sometimes by workers as well, that everyone is committed to the vision of having no accidents. Um, the critics say that this is unrealistic because you can't have zero harm. So if you've got an impossible goal, that leads to corruption of safety measurement, corruption of safety management, underreporting, misclassification, binary thinking, disillusionment. But the advocates say that it's okay to have an aspirational vision. You know, that's not a concrete target. It's a goal for the future that's going to drive innovation and learning and improvement. And that turns out to be something that has actually been studied, not in safety, but in the general idea of organizations that adopt these sort of aspirational goals. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to step outside safety and look just generally, is it a good or bad idea for organizations to have aspirational goals that aren't realistic targets? Um, David, anything else you wanted to add before we get into the paper itself? 
No, I really like this idea. We'll introduce the paper shortly, but Drew, as soon as you sent me through the topic, I straight away went, ooh, you didn't mention zero. Okay, here's an, here's an opportunity to talk about goal, goal zero. And I think organizations are in this loop, right, where I know maybe I can't achieve zero, but I can't set anything other than zero because that wouldn't be moral or responsible because I'd be saying it's okay to hurt people. So I, I set zero because it's sort of like the, the, the best thing for me to do. And then I think what this paper hopefully today starts to talk about, well, it might actually not be the best thing to do in certain types of situations. And um, yeah, and I think it's really important that organizations understand, you know, all of the dimensions of, of the work. Again, not just in the safety science, but the the setting and the achievement of these visionary goals and the organizational conditions that, you know, the positive conditions that those goals can create and the the negative conditions depending on the characteristics of the organization. So it was a lot of fun to read through this paper, Drew. So would you like to introduce it? Okay. So the paper has five authors, Sim Sitkin, Kelly C., Chet Miller, Michael Lawless, and Andrew Carton. They're all associate professors or professors at big universities in the US, at Duke, New York, Houston, Maryland, Penn State. Um, they're all very experienced management researchers. They've all got their own topics of interest, mainly focused on senior management goal setting and decision making. But they also seem to be part of this ongoing collaboration on the topic of organizations that set impossible goals. Uh, and so there are three or four publications all drawn from the same total group of about seven or eight authors. I think what they have in common is that they all did work at Duke at some point in time, and that's how they all know each other and they've just got this shared interest. Uh, the paper is called The Paradox of Stretch Goals, Organizations in Pursuit of the Seemingly Impossible. It's published in a journal called the Academy of Management Review. Uh, this is a highly, highly respected journal. It mainly focuses on theory papers, but papers that are grounded in evidence from non-management disciplines. So it's a way to take economic psychology, sociology, and sort of build up ideas about how to manage organizations grounded in that more foundational research. Um, and that's what this particular paper is. It's a theory paper but it's based on a critical review of empirical research. So I guess the trick to reading this sort of work is because the paper itself is not empirical, you've got to have a lot of trust in the authors and the peer reviewers of the journal that they're fairly representing the work that they're basing it on and that they're drawing reasonable conclusions. Because it's pretty easy to build up a theory of anything, claiming that you're referencing lots of other work, but actually you're stretching well beyond that original work. Um, so that's why it is important to think about who the authors are, what they know, who, what sort of journal it's published in. That gives you some assurance that this is not you know, unrealistic theory on a castle of sand. But yeah, bear in mind that this is not actual empirical research into stretch goals. These are logical conclusions based on underlying science and social science. Yeah, I think that's a good overview, um, Drew. So so if we start to talk about the paper, in the introduction of the paper, the authors sort of set up this problem that organizations face where organizations have to both balance short-term performance. So this month, this quarter, doing what we've committed to achieve or achieving what we've committed to achieve in the short term with long-term success, you know, building, building um for a sustainable and successful and hopefully better, better future than than exists for that organization today. So short-term performance, and, and these are different. I guess, objectives, both needing to be done at the same time in an organization because short-term performance is based on doing the things that you do now, uh, doing them well and, and, and possibly 
you know, continuously improving those things. And long-term performance is based more on learning, innovation, and change. So what we're going to be doing next year and five years from now and 10 years from now, the things the organization might be doing might look very different to how they look today. So Drew, do you want to talk about some strategies for encouraging kind of this this, this longer-term innovation and some of the other parts of the intro? Innovation is obviously something that gets talked about a lot in management literature. And there are fairly well understood basic strategies that you can do to make your organization more innovative. And they range from things as basic as just like having a higher turnover of employees and drawing from a wider, more diverse pool of employees uh, to creating whole separate units that are designed to be innovative and are free from the rules and constraints of the current organization. Like the Google Moonshot program or something like that, a whole program and team and resource to just go and find the next idea. Yeah, exactly. And then there's sort of strategies in between. So there's, rather than having a whole separate unit, you can have more decentralization. So allowing individual business units to be more free to make uh, big strategic choices. Or leveraging your current employees, picking out ones who aren't thriving in the current order and putting them together in a team to do something else instead. Um, Or sort of broad cultural strategies like manipulating risk preferences by the way you reward employees and the way you do evaluations to sort of encourage people to do more risk-taking and less conservatism. But the overall sort of point of all of these strategies is really sort of three things. You're trying to redirect energy, attention, and action towards alternate futures rather than managing the status quo well. And that redirection is really quite hard to do because there's a lot of built-in incentive and motivation to do things well right now rather than to take risks that might not pay off. And so, Drew, I guess, I mean, redirection, just for redirection's sake, isn't necessarily in the, in the long-term interest of an organization. So one way of, I guess, trying to support this redirection is this idea of setting a stretch goal. So we want to redirect the energy, attention, and action into an alternate future, but we want that alternate future to be in pursuit of this this, this future state vision or this stretch goal, something that seems to be impossible today, but will be a great outcome if the organization was, was able to achieve it. So the idea of this stretch goal is that it disrupts, you know, current complacency, don't like that word, but it promotes new ways of thinking and acting. And the stretch goal might serve like a deliberate moment moment of crisis, like you're almost creating a crisis or an uncomfortability in the organization by saying, we really want to be way over here and it's and it's very different to to where we are today. And this this feeling of crisis can also do those things, promote innovation and and experimentation and and new new directions for the organization. Because you know the, the very idea of a stretch goal suggests that the current ways of doing things are obviously you know, keep doing more of the same, then you're not going to achieve this this stretch goal. So new ways of doing things are very much encouraged through the setting of that stretch goal. Yeah. So, so a good example of this might be, uh, this, and this is one of the sort of success stories that's told about stretch goals, is Toyota setting a goal of, a, of like cutting fuel efficiency, sorry, doubling fuel efficiency or cutting the amount of fuel a car needs in half. And there's just no way you can achieve that by making a standard combustion engine incrementally more efficient. And so this stretch goal was credited with sort of the introduction of hybrid cars. You've got to have a whole new way of managing your car to get that sort of a seemingly impossible goal of doubling your efficiency. Um, Or another one was Southwestern Airlines uh, getting 10-minute turnaround times for airplanes at gates. 
you know, that, that it was just such a change that the regulators thought it was impossible under regulations. And the people at the airport thought it was impossible. The people in, so it's so disruptive that you can't just say, oh, we're going to get there bit by bit by doing things better and better and better. You've actually got to you know, drastically change the way you do things to meet the stretch goal. And so I think through these these ideas, people might see, you know, cutting costs in half or or reducing, you know, development, R&D development cycles from years down to down to months. And then in the safety space, going from having, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, a number of major incidents and minor incidents every every month or year to zero, right? It's this, this idea that is um, is is this this really big, seemingly impossible uh, goal when looking at the current functioning of the organisation. So, Drew, I think a good a good paper, and this is sort of a combination of this is a little bit of theorising and a little bit of um, literature review. I don't know quite what you call this 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 paper, but. One of the things that I like about a good paper that's written in this style is that the authors actually lay out their their questions that they specifically want to answer. Like they actually frame this paper up underneath the title with, uh, you know, what are the things that we're specifically interested in exploring through this paper? So do you want to sort of talk about that? Because I know you really like this type of format. Yeah, yes. I, I think every research paper should have a research question. In this case, they, they've got four questions. And these, these questions come out of the observation that there are lots of success stories of organizations who both set these seemingly impossible goals and dramatically improve their position as a result of those goals. But I think the authors sort of suspect that some of this anecdotal storytelling might be a little bit suspect. So their questions are firstly, what are the mechanisms through which having a stretch goal might result in exploratory learning and improved organizational performance. So in other words, instead of sort of, you know, step one, steal underpants, step three, profit, step two, question mark, how do you actually get from A to B? And then given that there are mechanisms, what are the risks of those mechanisms? So in other words, is it always going to be positive or how could it get worse? Once you've laid out those sort of mechanisms, positives and negatives, you can then ask, well, when does it happen? Does it sometimes work and sometimes not work? And are there patterns to when it's more likely to work and patterns for when it's less likely to work? And then their final question was, do, does this pattern actually hold true? Do the organizations that fit the pattern that should succeed, are they the ones that adopt stretch goals? Or do organizations that are unlikely to fit the pattern adopt stretch goals? Um, and spoiler alert, what they're doing here is pointing out a paradox, which is the title of the paper that they're eventually going to build to the argument that the organizations who could benefit from stretch goals don't set them, and the organizations who are unlikely to benefit from stretch goals do set them. And they explain some of the forces that might cause that to be the case. Yeah, I think, Drew, I like, I mean, I like a good paradox in social science research, and, and, and I like it when authors say, look, this is quite complex, yet we can, we can find patterns for, for how these, these social systems are likely are likely to work. So the definition of a stretch goal is, is is kind of really important. We've talked around a bit of a definition, but there's a sort of a four-point definition here of a stretch goal. One is that it's expressed as an outcome goal. It's usually a very quantifiable level of performance or an achievement of something very, very specific. The second is the probability of reaching the goal is unknown, but at the moment it seems to be impossible and it could be something like a 0% uh, possibility. It's not the same thing as a challenging goal, which have a non-zero, like a 10% probability of reaching them. And that might be a improve our production by 20%. Like that might seem very difficult, but it's something that 
is not a zero percent chance of, of of happening. This is not the same thing as as um. Well, there's an expectation that the people charged with pursuing the goal will figure out the strategies on how to reach it. And so, Drew, when I read that definition, I straight away thought of um, the moon race in uh, the 1960s and when JFK stood before Congress in, in 1961 and said, and I quote, that you know the US should commit itself to um, achieving this goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Now, I think what's interesting with that goal is at that point in time, NASA had never actually successfully put a person into into space, and it was uh, only a year after a Russian cosmonaut was the first person into space. So, you know, the idea of not only getting into space, but actually landing a person on the moon and bringing them back to Earth was something that was uh, seen to be impossible. But, you know, from you know, Kennedy's point of view, he's just, well, NASA will figure this out. Uh, I just need to set them the goal. So it's not quite an organizational sort of stretch goal, but it was the, definitely the one that that landed in my mind, when I read that definition, Drew, I don't know if you you like that example or or not. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good example of both a stretch goal and the way in which it's intended to drive performance, which is there are a huge number of different problems that needed to be figured out in order to do this. And everyone's just sort of thinking, oh, at some point vague in the future, we might get there. But the idea is that setting that as a goal basically says okay, you've got to take risks. You've got to start launching flights and see what happens. And some of them are going to blow up. But unless we try things out and try different technologies and yeah, that sort of like extreme ambition is what can drive the sort of behaviors and attitudes and emotions that lead you to the learning and change. And we maybe might revisit that example a little bit, Drew, when we talk about some of the contribute the things that contribute to those goals being successful for organizations and maybe maybe unsuccessful. So let's talk a little bit now back about vision zero, Drew. Do you think that you know zero harm or zero vision kind of meets this definition? Um so it definitely technically meets the definition. I, I struggle a bit on whether People who adopt zero harm are really going into it with the sort of goal that people have with conventional stretch goals. Because uh, you know, as you said yourself, sometimes it might be just more of a sort of moral frustration that you know the only acceptable goal for safety is zero. So it's not, it's not a, so much a stretch goal as just a reluctance to have any different sort of goal. But for the people who like seriously and academically defend vision zero as a good idea, This is what they're claiming it will have as its positive effect. So, you know, why is it a good idea for your organization to have a goal of zero? Is because having that goal will lead to innovation and learning rather than accepting the status quo as inevitable. So it does fit in those terms. And it's certainly, you know, a quantified goal. It does seem to have a 0% chance of success. It's more than just challenging. And for some organizations, there is an expectation that people will genuinely try to reach it. For other organizations, that fourth one might not apply, and it's more just of a sort of moral commitment rather than a strategic intent. Um, David, have you ever been in an organization? I'm sure we've had this conversation. Have you ever been in an organization that's had a zero harm? I don't think I've ever. I mean, it's definitely been part, not as a, I guess, not as a front and center express goal of the organization. I mean, definitely certain business units had adopted in organizations I'd worked in. And it was definitely, you know, there was some subtle background campaigning that had gone on in, in organizations that I was part of, but it was never on on t-shirts and coffee cups and and slogans and and not in what I'd imagine an organization is doing zero harm, what it would look and feel like inside. 
and the language was never a big part of any organization I was in. So the one organization that I've had the most interaction with with a zero harm policy would be Downer. And that's kind of interesting because some of it appeared to be just more of a zero because it has to be zero. And Sid Decker would mock their staff every time they showed up with this zero harm on their um, pockets because it's like branded onto all of the clothing and stuff like that. But what I found interesting is like this is an organization that I was involved in precisely because they were doing a lot of research and innovation and trying to like systematically try out brand new big picture things to shift the game on safety. So there was actually this alignment between the zero harm policy and an organization which was doing that real future thinking and experimentation and playfulness and trying to drive a sort of game shift learning. So, you know, that, that's a like N equals one, but it's one example of an organization with both zero harm and this genuine desire to make real innovative change for safety. Yeah, and I think that's where you mentioned earlier about whether why the goal is set and whether it's designed as an actual stretch goal to design that or there's other reasons because obviously the organization you're talking about is part of a, a contracting supply chain and it's doing a lot of demonstrated safety to a lot of clients who have an expectation to see certain things when they're contracting certain organizations so you know there's lots of different again like you said there's there's, there's reasons both moral and commercial uh as well as i guess strategic why organizations might set these goals and so that may have been part of the case in that organization as well. Yes, exactly. So two dimensions you mentioned. So extreme difficulty, extreme novelty. So so it must be a very difficult goal and no clear and apparent path, discernible path to achieve it at this point in time. So Drew, there's, let's talk a little bit about how stretch goals can kind of facilitate and disrupt this learning and performance improvement kind of outcomes of organizations. And, and do you want to explain how the authors uh, talk through how stretch goals could create positive outcomes as well as maybe negative outcomes inside organizations? Yep. So, so just as a language thing, they use these terms facilitators and disruptors, which I find a bit confusing when you're also talking about innovation at the same time. Because basically when they say facilitator, they mean sort of positive effect and disruptor, they mean negative effect on performance. So yeah, I'm just going to abandon the language of the paper and talk about them as positive effects and negative effects. Um, and they talk about three areas where you would have positive and negative effects. Uh, cognitive, which is ways people think. Effective, which is way people feel. And behavioral, which is things people do. So what are the possible cognitive effects of having a stretch goal. The first one is a sort of redirecting of attention. So what are, what are you noticing? What are you spending time sort of looking at and thinking about? Now that sort of can go inwards and outwards. Uh, outwards, it can be like looking for new sources of information and ideas. So going outside the organization and trying to find things that other people are th doing, that other people are thinking. And inwards, it can be sort of critically questioning the assumptions that people hold. What do people think is inevitable? What do people think can't be done or shouldn't be done or isn't worth trying? Uh, what are the frameworks? What are sort of locking us into particular ways of thinking and doing that we can challenge and disrupt? And then just sort of what do you sort of notice as it comes past? You know, are you more open to opportunities? Do you just sort of see something and think, hey, we could do that? 
hey, that's worth trying rather than a more sort of risk-based mentality that we see things and we think, oh, that's a challenge, that's a risk, let's not do that. David, anything else for you in that sort of cognitive space? No, no, I think you've, you've, covered, you've covered that well. I mean, really, really the positive effect is, is thinking outside the box, I think, in what you've sort of thought there, thinking new ways of thinking about how the organization functions. Yeah, that, that's a good summary. And thinking about the box is something that like everyone says that they want in their organization. But in practice, we usually don't want that. In practice, we usually want people most of the time to be behaving within the box so that the box functions really well. And, and so this is like a redirecting of thought to spend more time, not all, not all the time, but some of the time outside the box. Um, second thing is sort of about emotion. And the idea here is that there are positive emotions that are associated with learning and innovating. Optimism, urgency, curiosity, playfulness. Those are all like positive things that having a aspirational goal can lead people to. And, you know, the ideal is where people can actually imagine what that future looks like. And so they actually want to be in the organization that is in that future. And so they're trying really hard to get there because they'd rather be there than where they are now. And that can make people very, very motivated. That sort of moves then on to what sort of behaviors do those motivations lead to? You know, one of the simplest ones is just people try harder. When people have got somewhere that they're really looking forward to get to, they run faster. You know, they, they work longer, they work harder, um, but also they're more likely to engage in trial and error type behaviors rather than more conservative behaviors. And they're likely to do that with faster cycle times. So, you know, trying, failing, trying, failing, trying, failing, doing that more often rather than sort of like longer term incremental step-by-step -step improvement. Thanks, Drew. I think they're all, I mean, they're all positive things. They're all things that organizations talk a lot about. So I couldn't get past when we were talking about, we want people to think inside the box and outside the box at the same time. I just it was at Schrodinger's cat in my, in my mind since we were talking about that. But um, I, think, I think those things are, are really positive. And if your stretch goal achieves, achieves you know, those ways of thinking, feeling, and doing in your organization, then, hey, then that, that, that's really positive. And this sort of like, you know, accords with the language of innovation, you know, move fast and break things. You're trying to inspire that sort of attitude and reward that sort of attitude by the goals that you're setting for people. And even if we go to back to sort of like the aerospace example, you know, when you talk to people at NASA about commercial um, aerospace, you know, they, they talk about putting these big contracts out there for, for the SpaceX's and the Blue Origins and all of these companies to do. They don't know how these commercial companies are going to achieve it, but they put these really big contracts and opportunities out there knowing that these organizations are going to be able to do things and work in ways that NASA maybe maybe can't work. And I know maybe we'll talk about how that doesn't quite fit the model of this paper, but definitely you can see that industry moving away from saying, you know, we, we want this done this way. We just, we need this achieved. We need to have something that can land a person on the moon and, and we need someone who can sustain life on Mars, whatever it is, and let that goal create the environment to, to figure it out. So when we get into the negative effects, one of the sort of underlying principles here is when you're focused on innovation, is your attention directed inside the organization or outside the organization? And the authors, uh, based on a fair bit of research, say that sort of sustainable innovation mostly requires building on and improving stuff which is in the organization. So even though it might be a drastic change, 
it's still drawing on internal resources and ideas. And the risk is that when you get very frustrated or have an impossible goal that you think is impossible, people might not be inclined to do that. They might be inclined to sort of reach out for quick fixes from outside the organization, which is not the sort of innovation you want. It's just sort of like haphazardly borrowing outside ideas and trying to make them work. So uh, in terms of thinking, uh, if people can't make any sense of how to get to the goal, then they end up with disorganized and impulsive thinking. They start trying to sort of put in place quick fixes. So rather than genuine innovation, it's more like borrowing. You're grabbing an idea that works somewhere else and trying it here. So if you're trying to learn, then learning from outside is good, but it's got to be systematic and it's got to be genuinely bringing the ideas into the organization rather than just sort of haphazardly grabbing small ideas without systematically thinking whether they're a good fit, whether they're most useful, whether they're actually going to help reach the ultimate goal. Um, in terms of emotion, the important thing here is that emotions work in sort of both directions. Anything that can make you happy can make you sad in the wrong environment. So sure, having an impossible goal can highlight a sort of more exciting future and make you optimistic to get there, but it can instead make you think, oh, the goal is impossible. <laughs> We're not going to get there. This is hopeless. What are we doing here? Um, and so, yeah, depending on sort of who you've got and how they're already thinking, rather than being optimistic, people can get demotivated, feel helpless, even get into this anti-innovative environment of fear that they're actually afraid to take steps towards the goal because they fear the consequences even of trying. And the trouble is that when you're in an innovation trial and error type mode, you're always going to have failures. And if you're sort of predisposed to be hurt by those failures, to fear punishment or to have your morale shattered, then that's just going to get worse and worse. And you get into this cycle of early failures make you think that the goal is impossible. You think things are bad now because you've just failed. So you're not going to work at it. And even for an organization that is making progress, the closer you get to the goal, the less you have an initiative for working towards it because the more you're sort of tempted back into the conservative mold of just, you know, small incremental changes. Yeah, so I think, Phil, did you want to finish off any, any more of those negative characteristics? Okay, so if we just quickly finish off then with what sort of behaviours does it drive? A couple of things. In particular, it drives behaviours that don't have good feedback. So the organisation might make changes, but it's not going to have a good idea of whether those changes are helpful or detrimental. And it's going to be hard to sort of distinguish when multiple things are going on, what's actually contributing towards the success and what's not working well. It can lead to a discoordination between parts of the organization as well as different people sort of head off in different ways to try to achieve the goal, different ideas of how to get to the goal, and blaming each other for not making progress or for making progress in the wrong way. And that actually undermines current performance. So you're not doing well on the short term because of the trying to move towards the long term. And if you don't feel that that is worthwhile, that's just going to drive a cycle of poor performance now without supporting the positive performance towards the future. So Drew, we've heard those, those positive and negative kind of potential outcomes that these stretch goals or processes, uh, ways of thinking, feeling and acting in organizations from these stretch goals. So 
you know, the authors don't specifically talk about zero goals, but do you think, you know, the, the idea of zero harm or, or zero accidents, you know, how, how do you how do you think it fits with these ideas of creating positive or negative patterns and performance? So I don't think it's a great fit for the types of positive things that you would get at, for example, from saying, let's put a man on the moon or let's make a car that is twice as efficient as a current car. Because even if those seem impossible, they seem imaginable and they seem like futures that people would want to be in. Whereas having no accidents is, it's like literally logically impossible in the long term, but you're, you're kind of always there in the short term. So, you know, right now, the last day, the last week, you've had zero accidents. So you're there at the goal and then you have an accident, you're not at the goal. Zero as a stretch goal sort of seems to be much more reactive than the type of stretch goals that they're talking about as working. Um, but that, that's just like my personal impression. That's not what they say in the paper. Just trying to sort of logically think through, would it fit? It seems to fit with the negative ones, but it doesn't seem to well fit with the positive ones. Yeah, I think true. I mean, I think you, you quite passionately talk about the statistical impossibility of, of, of zero because to, to have that as being a possible outcome in organization, there needs to be, you know, zero risk. And, you know, I always talk to people about, uh, about driving on the roads. And I always use that example about short term, long term. I say, do you think it's possible for you to drive your car today and not have an accident? Or yeah, do you think it's possible for, you know, maybe there to be no accidents in your city uh, today? Oh, well, maybe that's possible. Do you think in the next year, it's, it's, it's possible that no one in the whole of Australia has a car accident? And people go, well, no, that, that, that has to be impossible, right? And so you get into this, this, um, discussion about, like you said, you know, over time, it becomes quite impossible. And the authors, I think, quite deliberately all the way through this paper, they always say seemingly impossible. They never actually say a stretch goal, you know, is something that is impossible. So it's a good, it's a good point. I think a stretch goal needs to be something that is practically achievable, even if you don't know how. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of the key thing is that they talk about it as something with 0% probability, but what they really mean is 0% probability unless the game changes. And then the goal is to make the game change. So like you could imagine, like, let's have zero car accidents. That could be possible with a game change where we stop driving cars, right? And like if, if, if say, Queensland committed to, we're going to make car accidents zero, like, how are we going to do that? That's just going to have to be like massive investment in public transport. You can see how that sort of stretch goal could work in that way, but it doesn't fit well with this like try, fail, try, because like the last thing an organization working towards zero harm is going to do is accept, let's try out things that are going to get probably get people hurt till we find a strategy that actually works better for safety. Yeah, that, that, that's very incongruous. So Drew, we've talked about the positive and negative patterns and outcomes. Let's let's talk a little bit about the contingency factors because even in the title we talked about the paradox and of of where these things might be useful and not useful and the authors then go on to talk about two what they call contingency factors which is organizational factors that may make it more likely or less likely that stretch goals gives you the positive effect that uh I guess is 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 hoped for and and claimed by by the advocates of of zero as a as a stretch goal. So do you want to talk talk to the first factor? Sure. So, so, so based on the mechanisms for what would create a positive effect of the stretch goals and what would create a negative effect of the stretch goals, 
An organization that is likely to have the positive effects is an organization which is currently performing strongly. So why is that? An organization that is currently performing strongly isn't going to be threatened by having something impossible to do because they're used to being successful. They're used to things going well. They're optimistic that if they try hard, it will work out. So they're already inclined to be optimistic. Their staff already have energy. They're motivated by the company. The organization, in order to have been successful, must have things within the organization to build on. Things that have worked well, that are like cognitively available to people. When people think of how are we going to be better, they'll say, oh, this worked really well. Let's do more of that. Um, they're more likely to be internally focused than externally. Um, you know, organizations that have done well, when you ask them what a successful organization look like, they're going to say us. They're not going to say their competitors. So they're less likely to try to innovate just by trying to borrow quick fixes from the outside. They're more likely to try to do things themselves, so be genuinely innovative. An organization that hasn't done well recently, that's currently performing badly, is much more susceptible anyway to fear and defensiveness. There's already blame going around. People are used to blame, they're fearing blame. They're more likely to be sort of looking for quick fixes because they're trying to be good now as well as good in the future. And they don't know how to be good now. So when we talk about innovative, they're talking about fixing things. So they're likely to be looking for those haphazard quick fixes. And when you set an organization that's used to doing badly, set them an impossible goal, they're much more likely to be overwhelmed by that. That overwhelm might become sort of hypervigilance. It might be disorganization. It might be sort of franticness. Um, so yeah, the, the strong performers are the ones that are actually more likely to have those positive effects that you're looking for. And I think that's a really interesting thing. It makes a lot of sense when you say it like that, that Drew, that a lot of the preconditions or a lot of the conditions and patterns and ways of thinking and feeling and, and acting, you know, like you said, there's likely to be strong foundations in good performing companies and and less foundations in weaker weaker performing companies. So I guess in relation to safety, we can draw the obvious conclusion that, you know, a company that is already seemingly quite quite safe and having a low number of accidents relative to their their risk in their industry and and that and that may may build on that but by having a zero but an organization that is performing very poorly maybe when it comes to safety maybe it's, it's it's not a smart thing to set a stretch goal like like zero harm and that may be the environment in which senior people in the organization think that it's most appropriate so yeah we, we are we are going to get onto that is to who is more inclined to put on a stretch goal um, but just quickly before we get there the other factor they point out which sort of goes hand in hand with success but isn't like intrinsically linked, is how much spare resource the organization has. And the model here is to think of Google, right? You Google, when it wants to set a stretch goal, just takes some of its spare cash and dumps it into an entirely new organization and says, have all the resources you want, have all the people you want, just try new things. If we lose that money, so what? And um, that's, that's what like the ultimate in Slack resources looks like. So basically, if you've got spare time, then you can spend time innovating without taking away from getting things done now. If you've got access to resources, you can systematically look for new sources of information. You know, if your company is strapped on their travel and training budget and you're only allowed, you know, two days a year to spend looking for stuff, you're going to be less able to just find new ideas than a company that's got like a massive like internal education budget that lets people go out and do entire degrees on the company's time. 
the more spare resource you have, the more you're looking for opportunities to spend that resource, the less likely you to perceive things as threats that are going to take away the resources that you have. And it's much easier to encourage people to make suggestions and come up with ideas. So if you believe that you know, the organization is going to back you, then if you've got an idea, you're going to make that suggestion. Whereas there's no point in making suggestions if you think that there's not going to be any money to try it, not going to be any time to try it. You're not going to chance to do it. So you basically, the more slack you have, the more you can keep doing what you're currently doing well, well, and you can try something new. Whereas if you don't have Slack, you've got to make a choice between the two of them. You're going to compromise current performance in order to get that future uh, innovation and change. So, Drew, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? So, so good performing companies with, with excess capacity uh, in terms of resources, you know, maybe benefit, get the positive benefits of stretch goals, organizations that are maybe poor performers and, and stretched on resources, you know, maybe get more of the negative sort of patterns and, and outcomes of stretch goals. So then who, which types of organizations are, you know, I maybe gave a bit of a spoiler earlier, but what types of organizations sort of seem to be the ones that actually pursue stretch goals? Yes. So, so I don't know if it's much of a spoiler when it's the whole like title of the paper, the paradox of stretch goals. If you're successful, if you've got spare resources, then you're not feeling any pressure to innovate. Your success breeds conservatism and risk aversion because you're doing well, you're doing fine. You don't need to change, you don't want to change. This is like, you know, the British in the lead up to World War I were deliberately trying to slow the pace of innovation in warships because they were winning. <laughs> you, why do you want a game-changing ship when you've got the best navy in the world? What you want is for things to stay the same. Whereas if you're in an organization that's falling short, you feel that you're not doing as well as your competitors or even not doing as well as you used to be then you're looking to change direction. You're looking to turn the corner and you're looking for big picture ways to do that, to change the whole momentum. So basically the organization, the type of organization that tends to set stretch goals is the type of organization where they're going to backfire. And the type of organization that doesn't tend to set stretch goals is probably the one that would most benefit, most be able to learn and innovate if they were to set those stretch goals. So Drew, let's just touch back in then on on maybe why people think, you know, maybe before listening to this podcast or reading this paper, you know, in terms of the, you know, the authors of this paper, why do people think stretch goals are a good idea? We hear about stretch goals a lot in in business. I have throughout my whole career as a specific term, you know, every year with annual performance target setting, you know, the idea of setting stretch goals. So why might people think that it's a good idea? So so the most immediate reason is just very obvious in that there's a lot of success stories about organizations that have set stretch goals and have achieved success. Those are great stories. They're great stories to tell. They're great stories to read. They're very optimistic and inspiring. You know, who doesn't want to be the next Apple? Who doesn't want to be the next Toyota? Who doesn't want to be the next Google? Who doesn't want a story of organization was struggling and then they set themselves the ambition to change the world and they change the world. But if you look closely at those stories, most of them were organizations that at the time they set the stretch goal had good resource endowments. So in other words, these are actually the people who break the pattern or break the paradox because even though they were successful, they still decided to go ahead and set stretch goals because they thought the way to stay successful 
wasn't to stay the same. It was to vote current success towards future innovation. So they're actually kind of exceptions rather than a pattern that, you know, if you feel like you should set stretch goals, you should set stretch goals. Um, so in other words, if you are already the next Google, then go ahead and innovate. If you're already the next Apple, go ahead and innovate. If you're already the next Toyota, go ahead and innovate because that's long-term the only way to keep your lead is to do this sort of innovation. But you know, if you're an organization that's currently struggling, you know, this might not be the answer to stop struggling by setting the stretch goal. Or struggling or without the resources. I think that's the other good point in here as well. Like um, we see these goals, stretch goals coming at a time when organizations are doing sort of big, uh, are really challenged on resources and even going through quite deliberate resource reduction cost-cutting type programs and setting really ambitious stretch goals at, at the same time, thinking that things these things might go together. But this, this paper here sort of suggests that they go the opposite direction. Yes, and no, I think that's almost like one of the inevitable patterns that I've run across in my career is organizations setting stretch goals for efficiency because they sort of are experiencing a shortfall in resources and they want to try to recapture some of that margin they're setting stretch goals for efficiency and that like falls straight into the negative trap in that you know you can't innovate for greater efficiency at the same time as you're feeling that push you know you, you've got to invest in order to reap those returns um, i don't really know where sort of safety fits quite in this because an organization could be quite successful in other fields and pick safety as their area that they want to innovate in that would actually match the positive pattern. You know, an organization that's doing well in terms of productivity, they recognize they've got a bit of spare cash. They think, okay, let's set some real game-changing goals for safety. Would actually make sense with the positive pattern. But it tends to be that organizations with poor safety performance are simultaneously experiencing uh, particularly crunched margins, resource shortfalls, and often poor performance in other areas as well. So, Drew, we've talked about some of these success stories and, I mean, there's always a risk of cherry-picking these success stories and believing that the conditions that created those success stories can be reapplied to to our own situation. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, um, how that might relate to safety? And I know you've sort of pulled some quotes out of the paper as well. Okay, so, so this is just a sort of general warning they give about how businesses learn what's good behaviour. And it's a real problem with... It happens in leadership research as well, where we see these apparent success stories that come out of both sort of selection bias and incomplete learning cycles. You know, for a short period, there's apparent success. So we say that must be a great strategy. What we don't see is what that looks like in the long term. And what we don't see is all those other organizations or other leaders that were doing the exact same thing without becoming the success story because those don't make the news. And I think this happens particularly in safety all the time. You know, we have a relatively short period when we don't have accidents and we champion that as a big success story. Hey, come and learn from us because we're doing it well. But there hasn't been any sort of long-term change in the underlying risk. There's just been a relatively short period of no accidents. And so trying to say, oh, that's because of the zero harm, or that's because of the stretch goal, that, that is a real logical fallacy. Um, so we really got to, to understand these things, like systematically find not just a like, good set of organizations that happen to have had success and happen to have done zero harm, 
but find all the organizations that adopted Zero Harm and see you know, what effect it had on all those organizations over the longer term. And that's really hard research to do because companies that are doing badly don't stick their hand up and volunteer to be part of research into what makes safety successful. So you do tend to oversample. And I think the second part, Drew, in one of these quotes, which we might not get to, not get to for time, but um, is that you know, depend the the coupling of of, of adopting a zero harm stretch goal and then uh, and then having a period of of, of good performance. You know, the, the authors talk a little bit about this drop in drop in a large ocean of organisational initiatives. Like, you know, how do you know which of the things that have contributed? And when we think about safety as an emergent property of the work. Then it may be un- less likely to be the, the the specific safety things that have been implemented uh, compared with other organisational kind of changes or improvements that have that have changed the way that work gets planned or executed and maybe changed the risk. Yeah, and this is I think the most like palatable message for people when you're trying to be sceptical about the evidence for safety initiatives. Is you someone tells me I came into an organisation and I introduced zero harm. And the organization's been doing really well for the past 10 years. You know, my question would be, how do you know that the difference was zero harm? How do you know the difference was you came into the organization? <laughs> you, maybe it's not zero harm. Maybe it's just you're really, really good at your job. And you, there's always things like that that we can ask because you, no one ever does things in a vacuum. There's always other things they're doing, other things that are going on. True. We always do practical takeaways. I'm sure our listeners who have got to this point in the episode are, are really interested to see what we'll we'll suggest here. But I, I know you've got a bit of a caveat before we we get there. So do you want to share that, and then we'll. I think it's good for us to just dive into practical takeaways. Yep. So, so I just just do just want to remind listeners that the authors didn't directly measure any of the effects that they're talking about in this paper. So they're extrapolating to logical conclusions based on evidence about how organisations work. And David, you and I are extrapolating further to then extrapolate this to zero harm. So don't take this as gospel. Take this as ways of thinking about this sort of issue and maybe moving the needle on what you consider to be good arguments and evidence when it comes to things like zero harm. In particular, this idea that very few strategies are universally good or universally bad. The question is, how do we think it works? And is this the right time in the right organisation where we think that this would work? Or is this not the conditions under which we'd think this would work? So the first takeaway then is there are plausible mechanisms where stretch goals, including goals like zero harm, can improve safety. But those mechanisms work when you're in a space that facilitates experimentation, openness to new ideas, and radical change. So if that's the space you're in, something like a zero harm vision would go really along with encouraging that sort of thing. And I think Drew, in my sort of experience, recent and, and and over the longer term, is that's possibly not the case in lots of companies that have adopted this type of stretch goal in the resources industries, construction, manufacturing, logistics. You know, they they're not they don't tend to be industries that, that that operate in this space of experimentation, new ideas, radical change. So I think that's a good first takeaway. Yep. Second one is that the organisations that should be thinking in terms of stretch goals are the ones that are currently successful and they've got time, space and other resources. And that goes both ways. If you're an organisation that finds itself that has like currently free resources or currently seems to be doing well, that's exactly the time you should be trying to shift towards that longer term thinking uh, rather than focusing all your energy just on maintaining what you're doing now. And so I think through, you know, thinking of it as like a good to great 
like setting a stretch target when you're when you're already good. And 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 I liked your point earlier that it may not be just in relation to safety performance. Like you might be a really good operational performance company that has you know got safety maybe not where you you want it to be, but you might have, have good reliability, good productivity, and, and a bunch of other things. And and again, it gives you those those foundations to draw on and leverage maybe into the safety stretch goal. The third one is mainly Drew sort of thinking around this issue, I guess, because of the way they talk about when stretch goals work. I think possibly, even if you want to set a stretch goal for safety, expressing it as zero harm might not be quite right. It might be better to express your stretch goal as something that is a bit more specific to your own organization and more about trying to radically change risk exposure. So, you know, radically change the amount of car travel or sort of like get rid of car travel. That seems impossible, but would be really good for safety if you could do it. Uh, you know, radically change the amount of work at heights. Uh, radically change your goal. People in an organization never go into confined spaces. Um, how are we going to achieve that? Um, or even like change number of hours per week. You were going to set a stretch goal that we get the same amount of stuff done and people only need to be at work for 30 hours or four days a week. Um, all of those things would be like positive transformation that gives that idea of an impossible vision that people can see and can try to make possible. Whereas expressing things in terms of zero, I think, is a little bit at odds with that. Andrew, I think it's a really good point. I was just reminded of when when you were talking about that is I was involved in an organization and the we set a target of a 50% reduction in windscreen time, which was around car travel. It was a very geographically, you would know Western Queensland well, it was a very geographically diverse asset. Lots of people driving to and from very remote areas and obviously quite a worrying risk of of light vehicle type incidents. And yeah, that was the, the goal was 50% reduction. And it was one of those things that that's impossible. But you know, the organization, I don't know if it ever quite achieved it, but you know, found very different ways of working for people to achieve certain tasks. So I think that was good. And I, I added a few extra ones here, like you know, something seemingly impossible, but maybe drive performance of just saying, we're going to have two engineering layers of protection for every fatality risk in the company, you know, or something like that, where it's just seemingly, like you said, seemingly impossible, but gives people something to, you know, run towards rather than run away from. Yep. And I think that particular one is something that has gone very well with what people were originally trying to get at with zero harm. Like, I think in its early conception, people were trying to get away from this idea that the accident happened, oh, that's inevitable. There's nothing else we can do about it. So having that, that attitude, you know, every accident, there is something that we could engineer rather than just saying, oh, there's nothing we can do about this. Yeah, that's the sort of vision. Um, people have actually done really well in the sustainability space with these sort of stretch goals, with things like, you know, cutting paper, cutting carbon, cutting energy usage, and really like quite dramatically changed infrastructure and the way organizations work to try to reach some of those seemingly impossible sustainability goals. So I think it can be done in safety. I was in an organization, I'm now going back 20 years, Drew, but I was in an organization and um, changed every printer default to uh, double-sided grayscale in the whole company um, that couldn't be unchanged. And yes, for a moment, I was an incredibly popular person in the company. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the type of thing like radically changed the way that people kind of do things. I won't talk about some of the unintended consequences of of, of something like that, but you're right. I, I I think the environment sort of function has, has used it well. So final takeaway, Drew. Okay, so, so this is actually repeating something we said in episode 12. And Dad, I'm interested if you sort of st- still agree with this point you made back then, which is I think that if you're in an organization with zero harm right now, or you're having a zero harm 
sort of imposed from the outside through contractual relationships. I don't think it's worth fighting about. I think the actual wording of the slogan uh, is pretty insignificant. Where there's leverage is in trying to interpret that sort of like high level slogan into the type of vision and application that is more likely to get the positive effects and less likely to get the negative effects. So, you know, don't fight having zero harm. Just be clear that zero harm is about radical change. It's about searching for experimenting with new ideas. It's not about knee-jerk reactions to each individual event that happens. It's about the long term, not about maintaining the short term. Yeah, I think Drew, look, I, I think in my my opinion here, just just listening to you say that and and thinking back is, you know, zero harm might not be the problem, right? Re- when we read through this paper and we look at it, they're just talking about stretch goals in general in certain, you know, positive, negative, certain types of organizations that it suits. So if you've got zero harm and you're you're worried about that stretch goal, thinking that setting a different stretch goal for safety is going to solve the problem. I think this paper would say that's not actually the problem. It's not the stretch goal that's the problem. It's kind of like, do you have the the conditions in the environment in your organization that, that gets the positive benefits from stretch goals in general? So I think if you don't have zero harm and you think you've got the types of conditions in your organization that could benefit from stretch goals, I think I'd set a stretch goal for safety, but I wouldn't do zero harm. I'd, I'd, I'd do something different. But if you do have zero harm, I'd work more on changing, kind of like you said, changing the conditions in the organization to try to get more of the positive outcomes rather than thinking that changing the stretch goal itself is magically going to get you all of those benefits. Yeah, or even have like zero harm as your sort of indefinite long-term vision and set your short-term like two-year, five-year strategy. Some of those more concrete, but also very stretch goals around particular safety risks. Yeah. So Drew, the question that we asked this week was, when are seemingly impossible goals good for organizational performance? And I think we have a fairly clear answer here that they're good when the organization is currently doing well enough, currently has a bit of Slack resource and has the willingness to sort of go into a process of genuine innovation, trial and error, systematic learning. Stretch goals are not good when the organization is struggling and trying to turn a corner using the stretch goal. Thanks, Ruth. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 